Welcome to Lean Back. I'm Lisa. And I'm Laura. And today's episode is about authenticity. So, Laura, when you think about authenticity, what what comes to mind? I think initially about expressions of individuality or like raw moments of lived experience. So what what do you think about when you think about authenticity? I think of authenticity as a very existentialist <laughs> sort of playground of ideas that materialize in public culture around sort of quests for self-fulfillment or self-realization or personal growth. In the public culture, ideas about authenticity emerge in conversations about what people want to be when they grow up and what kind of life that they want to live and how they can overcome feelings of deep dissatisfaction with the way that their life has turned out. It occurs in conversations about longevity, like how to build an authentic relationship with others. And in the West, I think that almost always comes down to questions of heterosexual marriage. So when I think about authenticity and how it functions in the larger culture, those are the kinds of conversations that I think the authentic taps into insofar as it relates to the idea of the individual as you were thinking about it. But I think the thing that underlies those questions and concerns is one about not just identity, but the relationship between identity and desire. So how do I know what I want? How do I get what I want? Does what I want fulfill me? Have I been wanting the right things or the wrong things? You know, how do I understand my desires and make sense of them? And I think for those of us who, you know, are struggling to be socially conscious as much as possible, what are the ethical ramifications of my desire? And does what I want conflict with what's good for society? So I think, you know, there's a nexus there, an existentialist nexus of ideas that are that are based in fundamental questions about the relationship between desire and identity. It's interesting that you say that because I think not a lot of people ask themselves those questions. I think questions generally center more around how can I achieve and then fill in the blank for whatever measurable sign of achievement or success or beauty. They have conflated their desires with what's been culturally constructed. I mean, watching the 2016 presidential election cycle as minimally as I try to, I feel like Donald Trump is a really good landscape for thinking through how people project the notion of authenticity onto him. And and political candidates, especially in the national limelight more generally, I feel like they become a canvas for the projection of dissatisfaction and idealization, even though people aren't explicitly asking themselves questions about the nature of their desire and the possible outcomes, I think is a perpetual part of the way that they think about what they want. And especially when what they want is a person, (laughs) you know, I feel like the conversation 
about Donald Trump is an authentic candidate. And then mapped on top of that is all of the reality TV show stuff, right? I mean, this hyper real, very Baudrillard kind of notion of what reality is and how it constantly manufactures more and more realness is a part of the media landscape, right? So like it's Donald Trump as a guy who owned a bunch of stuff, lost a bunch of, went bankrupt a bunch of times, owned a bunch of real estate, went bankrupt a bunch of times, got on the TV and then manufactured quote unquote reality TV, which is so hyper manufactured. And that's how politics are, is hyper manufactured. So when I think about you talking about that, and I think about the political landscape and sort of these desires for a more authentic Hillary Clinton or the idea that Bernie Sanders is somehow authentic because he's basically appropriating black rage as an old white man. I find authenticity space is full of irony, which is why I'm also very skeptical of its ability to be concrete or real in some sort of existential permanent being sort of way. Well, I'm kind of confused about, as I said earlier, why authenticity is even a value that people have. What is the value of authenticity? I mean, culture is a constructed thing. I was I was thinking, just like in a philosophy class sense of it, is it better to live in the matrix than outside of it? Yeah. Well, when I think about that question as like a political disposition, I'm thinking about the election cycle. It always strikes me as specious to want authenticity instead of talent, <laughs> especially in like politicians. Like, what the, the authentic question is so not important to me. I'm like, I want somebody to be in charge of things who knows the things, <laughs> who knows how to do things, who can build relationships, who can think in really big and really small ways about, you know, all kinds of political questions. And so when I think about authenticity, I don't think about the performativity of the self, except as it relates to like technical knowledge, which is very elitist, I'm aware. But, you know, given the example that I'm, I'm posing, I would like to see more hyper-competent people rather than people who are authentically producing, especially some kind of identity politics, who are feminist enough or black enough or angry enough or whatever. I mean, all of those things seem to me to be spaces where the unregulated, really unexamined desires of the culture bubble up in mostly problematic ways that I don't think are terribly useful at all. But I think that there's a sense in which we want to see the authentic as something that is achievable you know, like it's a very linear thing. If you just do the X and the Y and the Z, you'll ultimately get to the outcome, which is authenticity. And in authenticity, we find perhaps predictability, right? Where we can say, oh, well, you're being authentic because I, I know how you'll behave in any given situation. Or a friend of mine yesterday told me, you know, you're really good at doing you, which is a sort of interesting thing because it presupposes that she knows who the me is that it's somehow been exposed to her in a way that is extremely legible and predictable and understandable, which really sort of surprised me that there was a sense that anybody feels like they know some sort of essential part of me. But I think that that's part of authenticity, right? Is that people think that they're reading the authentic you 
when it's legible and predictable to them. But I'm not really sure that that has any relationship to some sort of existential, you know, state of being that they're seeing. Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. Certainly the whole history of, you know, modern philosophy is grappling with whether or not there's an essential kind of being, you know, that can be measured or seen or experienced. It is weird that a lot of different qualities get read as authenticity. Because in your case, I think, I mean, you are different than your colleagues and different than your peers in uh, noticeable ways. And you're very active. And, um, and I think people who do things that are different or considered unusual or innovative, I think people like that are considered to be authentic. But I feel like that's not true because if we think that's, well, it's not, not that it's not true, but it's, it's both true and not true. It is true that there is a range of non-normative behavior that is, that positively correlates in imaginaries as authentic. But there's, there are just as many non-normative behaviors that don't think about LGBTQ folks, especially trans folks in bathrooms right now is, that's a huge conversation. That's all about penalizing the authentic. And we were talking before we started recording about St. Vincent, the musical artist. And you and I went and saw her in Tulsa about a year ago. Yeah. So I read this interview. I guess she had received some questions about her identity on her self-titled album. You know, she wore a lot of makeup and changed her hair color and um, implemented all these like performative elements to her live show and there were questions about her change in identity and she was kind of saying that white men with beards who play acoustic guitars or singer songwriters are considered to be authentic and that adds value to their music and when she creates an identity for herself and wants to perform in a certain way and changes the way she looks then somehow diminishes the value of her work in some way. And she was kind of pointing out that both of those things are put on images. Sad man with a beard, you know, <laughs> yeah. like, and her expressions of monstrosity and alienation are also images that she's creating. But that's why I think authenticity in the way that we um, value it is like most other social constructions. It's indexed based on the proximity of the authentic to whiteness, masculinity, heterosexuality, Christianity, able-bodiedness, class. I mean, you know, the thing about the white-bearded songwriter guy is that he's normative. <laughs> so we read authenticity onto him as a vector of privilege. It's not because he is more talented or less talented necessarily. It's because the one space where he is sort of modifying masculinity is perhaps in the expression of vulnerability. And I think that the way that we positively correlate authenticity in terms of interpersonal relationships is actually often mapped onto how vulnerable people are being or how honest we feel that they're being. In my case, perhaps it is about how much people perceive the social risks that I'm taking by saying the things that I say or doing the things that I do. You know, there's a sense at which that that is can be perceived as authentic in a way. But by other populations, those things can also be read as wildly inauthentic. I'm a white woman in a white university talking about the civil rights movement and black power. You know, my I make money 
basically doing his histories of not necessarily just white people. So that there is a way in which there is, I think, a reasonable skepticism of that as an orientation, and certainly a healthy one. There is a relationship, I think, between skepticism and authenticity that is perpetual. It's always there. So anybody can be dissected in terms of their fidelity to their own ideals, and that's where the critique generally lies, I think. How close to, what are your ideals? How close are they articulated and to what you actually perform? I think there's, there's utility in being skeptical towards, you know, the authentic. It's interesting to think about how people, how people are perceived as either authentic or inauthentic based on how they express their identity Mm -hmm. or like reinvent their identity. So people who, you know, have changed their values in particular ways and then change their identity to reflect those values or change their sexuality to reflect people who change are read sometimes as inauthentic when you could actually have certain lived experiences that generate a change that you then use to reinvent yourself in a particular way. And it's just interesting how sometimes that can be read as inauthentic and sometimes that can be read as authentic depending on your privilege sometimes or depending on how society views whatever your expression is. If we could go back to the presidential campaign cycle for a minute. Yesterday, Hillary Clinton was crowned the Democratic nominee The thing that I find so striking in some of my colleagues' criticisms of Hillary are not their disparagement of political choices that she's made, but I feel like they get read into a much larger critique that paints her as as inauthentic because she uses reason. A lot of people dislike Hillary and they can't see how how it's sexist because she applies really stringent reasoning behind her political decisions. And that strikes me as extremely sexist. The problem there is that women can't then authentically perform reason, where somehow, despite the fact that Bernie Sanders is almost entirely using affective, blackened rage, and this sort of like hip-hop credentialing, to articulate dissatisfaction about the rich-poor gap. And I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with articulating the rich-poor gap the way that he does or that there's not utility in circulating that. Certainly there is. But the fact that he is using almost entirely affective speech and she is using reason and being demonized for it as inauthentic strikes me as extremely sexist. And I think that for, especially for women who do reproductive justice work or certainly the Arkansas politicals that I know that have seen how much work Hillary Clinton has done to ameliorate the rich poor gap in Arkansas while she was here, even before she was first lady. That strikes us as a bizarre occlusion of her record. I'm mostly just interested in how their narratives of self become narratives of nation And like I said, how the culture maps their own expectations onto these figures. I'm way less interested in the outcome of the election, really, than I am in how these kinds of notions about feelings and desires get articulated onto certain subjects to carry along 
the momentum of what we want. And part of that, I think, is because we're living in this moment where the idea of America is uh, extremely contentious. We're in, I think, the American soul, I guess, for lack of a better word, is in crisis and is trying to articulate what it means to be American now. And that's tied up with issues of identity politics, but it's also tied up in expectations about our ability to fulfill the myths of the culture. So yeah, I guess when I think about, you know, this political climate, I feel like it's a time where there's a tremendous amount of reassessment about national identity and what it means to be American. And it just seems like this presidential contest is one place where people are grappling with what does it mean to be an authentic American person. And I feel like that conversation ties together ideas of manifest destiny and um, notions of American exceptionalism and individualism, those ideas of identity and desire, and then a larger conversation about how the culture is fundamentally changing and how the values are changing. And it feels very much like an identity crisis. Like, what does it mean to be authentically American? Where the way in which the presidential candidates are being articulated become proxy for different interpretations of authenticity. And that's always the case in presidential contests. So I'm not saying that that's not somehow genre-dependent or context-dependent, but it just seems heightened this year in a way that it did not in 08. It seems like then there are different levels of authenticity. There's like a communal kind of authenticity where you're representing values that you're expected to represent based on your race or the country that you live in or your class or your gender. And there's like a communal kind of authenticity where you, the values that you're expected to have, but then there's a type of authenticity of the, you know, the individual and it becomes authentic to represent something that's uniquely yourself outside of that communal vision. And it's interesting that in politics, that communal type of authenticity becomes really important. And then that individual expressions of authenticity end up being really commodified. Mm -hmm. Comes a thing where you have to express it through what you buy and how you look. And it's interesting that the type of political authenticity that um, people are expected to have to be like a real American is at odds. You would say Mm -hmm. someone who is expressing their culture as an individual, but that culture is different than what's traditionally American, which is a really constricted narrative and one that like erases a lot of different people mm-hmm. who lived here and erases a lot of damage that the powers that be caused. <laughs> it's just interesting that, that that narrative has like been associated with a certain kind of authenticity and that it's at odds with people's real expressions of themselves. Yeah, I mean, I agree with that. I think the notion of American exceptionalism is predicated on exclusion. 
And, you know, Audre Lorde called it the mythical norm, right? The, the idea that you're an American is a super narrow box. It's that white, heterosexual, male, Christian, financially secure, um, able-bodied sort of dude as the ideal projection of what it means to be an American. But in a country that's browning so quickly and demographically shifting in such tremendous ways, I feel like authenticity becomes a sort of vector for thinking through how to domesticate and discipline the self in a time where the other bodies are unruly and unknown and marked as other. And so there's something about the authentic as it's become a mode of branding, you know, commodities and part of therapeutic self-help culture that is distasteful to me because it seems to be a way of actually hiding from the vulnerability that comes from understanding the colonial histories that white people have participated in. And it becomes a way of avoiding personal and social responsibility for inequality. So I feel of two minds about it. I feel like there are ways in which authenticity as a, a, a way of engaging existential questions of being is a productive philosophical space um, in some ways because it can help us get to questions of ethics and the relationship between the self and ethics. But in other ways, I just feel like it is the happiness industry. <laughs> now I, I feel like authenticity is also a commodified space that propels us to consume books and books on tape and gurus and Buddhism and, you know, have these hyper-orientalist readings of the East that are supposed to get us in touch with some essential part of being. And maybe they can and maybe they can't, but the fact that they're being, you know, marketed to do so strikes me as extremely problematic. And maybe that's because I dislike the way that branding mobilizes authenticity as a selling point for commodities. A lot of brands have changed their tone to be like really loose and conversational and hey, I'm your friend talking to you about the new Enchirito at Taco Bell or whatever gross thing that someone is trying to sell you on social media or it's interesting how like that kind of what's being read as authenticity is being used to get people to buy things. There's like certain values placed on authenticity that seem, I mean, they seem ridiculous. I think about art, whether a piece of art is authentic or not completely changes the value even though that like if you're looking at a rep an exact replica of an artwork you have you can have the same emotional experience with it and it can look the same way and mean the same thing if, if no one told you that it was an exact replica and not the real thing you wouldn't know yeah and so there's this weird value placed on you know whether something's original or authentic well, you know, Sarah Vinay Weiser has written a lot about consumer citizenship and the way that consumption defines the role of the citizen. 
And I feel like maybe that's part of the ambivalence around authenticity right now, especially if we view, you know, politics as, as an object to be consumed. It seems to me that if consumption is a primary mode of expressing citizenship and the rich gap divide is increasing so much, where there are so many people in America living beneath the poverty line that have no access to a living wage, how can you actually produce citizenship if you can't consume? You can't. And those people get edited out. And so then there becomes even more of an impetus to fetishize commodities when so so few people have access to owning them to be able to produce that kind of consumer citizenship. And that speaks very much about authenticity. So on the one hand, you are an authentic citizen if you consume the right commodities. And on the other hand, there's also a concurrent fetishizing of the have-nots, right? So that's like the noble savage stuff that happens, especially down here in the South around Native Americans, um, or you know, the model minority things that happen in the cities around Asian students and achievement. I mean, you know, there are these pockets where we demonize the other by saying, you know, everybody should speak English only. But then in the private schools, kids are learning Mandarin and Spanish, right? So there is an ambivalence, I think, about the authentic and its ambivalence in the modern moment, in the contemporary moment, is tied very, very much to consumption and branding and a landscape of goods. From an educational perspective, that's real weird because this sort of move to privatize public education is endemic, <clears throat> I think, of how much we want to commodify the entire cultural landscape in which we live, monetize it, make it predictable, standardize it, and destroy it. So anything that is even remotely historically useful about providing free public education to all American citizens as like the premier articulation of what it means to be American or of what democracy in its essential form has to consider is now reduced to this extremely nihilistic, banal expression of consumer citizenship, where the student is the consumer. It's a, ter it's a terrible model to like look at all of your relationships as how, t how closely they are tied to the brand or the logo or the Fortune 500 company. And that's a very strange way to interpolate identity and desire, I think, especially in a culture that is so clearly hungry for different kinds of intimate connections. Then at the beginning of the podcast, season one, we were talking a lot about intimacy and vulnerability and building reciprocal relationships and this hunger that Americans have to connect with one another that they feel that they're not getting. And we know that because they self-report it. You know, they're divorcing and they're dissatisfied and suicide rates are high, and mental illness is high, and people are medicating in lots of ways because they're dissatisfied. Surrounding yourself with the goods and the commodities in lieu of human connection is probably not a good trade-off. A lot of times that kind of commodification is like an entry point to even being able to connect with people in the first place because they've structured their identity around brands and products. Yeah. In dating apps, there's a lot of focus on tenuous points of connection. 
But there is this connection between the authentic self and the production of authentic goods or, you know, the performance of authenticity. There's slippage there that's really interesting to me because I feel like even while people are hungry for the kind of connection that is referenced by the points of cultural attraction, that where that is a signal of a certain way of thinking about the world or a certain politics or certain aesthetics, that's what you're nodding at, right? It's, you're, when you say, I like Andrew Bird, you're not saying all we're going to talk about is Andrew Bird. You're saying I'm the kind of person who like who likes Andrew Bird for all of these reasons about him, his performance, his art, his niche, right? I mean, you're gesturing to a much larger scope of political connection. And I I think that, that that's a useful way of understanding how, you know, creativity is harnessed, you know, to create connections among people. But I'm also thinking about, you know, this moment where in American culture, people are leaving organized religion in droves. And really the only places where organized religion is increasing is, is in evangelical political circles, especially in the South. And why is that? Because the megachurches have branded themselves as giant mega malls, right? Where you can go and get your hair cut and go shopping and go to a service. And it's all prosperity gospel where the constant conversation is about consumption and about financial success. And that's got to be exhausting. <laughs> it's got to be exhausting to completely orient your spiritual philosophy of the existence of self inside of this tunnel view of commodities. I mean, it's got to produce tremendous neuroses, especially with that rich-poor gap being so big. But that's what what's left of the middle class is do is consuming our messages that they're going to be able to run harder and faster on the hamster wheel and get more money and, and buy the shoes and the bigger house and, you know, do all the status stuff. And so on the one hand, you know, there is this hunger for real connection that's about authentic interpersonal conversations that feel intimate and vulnerable, that's where the emotionality is high, where the risks are sometimes high, and then this you know, fetishizing of the objects of capital. I don't know. I just feel like there are places that have been traditionally understood as cultural spots where authentic connections can be made between the self and others, and they're around art, and they're around music, and they're around politics, perhaps, and they're around religion, and they are places where identity is manufactured and built. But I think it's in crisis now in a way that it has not necessarily been exactly before, you know, where it's a different kind of moment for crisis. If Hillary Clinton wins the presidency, what does it mean for America to be led by a woman after two and a half centuries of hyper-masculinist American exceptionalism premised on the production of hyper-masculinity? That is an identity crisis. <laughs> Having a black man lead America was an identity crisis that produced the Tea Party and this tremendous white backlash. These are moments of interrogation to authenticity that create all kinds of, you know, models for thinking through what it means to have a particular kind of identity. 
So it'd be very interesting in my mind, I think, to see what the backlash cycle looks like if she wins or if Trump wins, because that's a different kind of assertion of the hyper-masculinist in the face of, of female leadership. That is, it's larger than the candidates themselves. It's a real question of what direction America wants to go in to identify, you know, its existence or its being or its soul. How does it want to articulate itself for the world as a brand? Thanks for listening. These materials are not endorsed, approved, sponsored, or provided by or on behalf of the University of Arkansas Fayetteville.